0: Hey everybody, this is Al Madrigal from The Daily Show and About a Boy, and you are listening to PF's Tape
1: Recorder. Enjoy.
0: Hello there, I'm PF, this is my tape recorder. Coming up, it's the amazing Jonathan.
1: Illusions uh, are considered... uh... When you say illusions, like the big stuff, like like the sword cabinet, I stuck with the magic. I still learn. I still wanted to learn magic, but um, comedy was first and foremost,
0: you know. You may remember our friend Steve Byrne was on the show, oh, about a year ago or within the past year, discussing a documentary he had made about the Amazing Jonathan. And you may recall the Amazing Jonathan. Off of the 80s and 90s, he did magic, he did comedy, and it's kind of interesting uh, to hear how he positions himself, how he views himself and his career. I think you're really going to enjoy this chat. It was a lot of fun. Uh, You may know that he had some health problems. He's back out on the road. He is touring, and we'll discuss all that as well. Uh, We're going to have the song of the week coming up from Sagala and Ella Irie. It's a big hit over in the UK and across Europe and is not doing much business here in North America, but we'll We'll give it a listen. And then, of course, uh, as our friend Will Durst, told us a couple of weeks ago, boy, if you like political comedy, you like creating political comedy, uh, we have an embarrassment of riches now, don't we? So here comes a dumb bit. We could do one of these every week, of course, probably every day. It's what kind of nonsense is that? So the big controversy this week, of course, was the events in Charlottesville. uh, Last weekend, if you're downloading this uh, podcast, the other day it comes out or a couple days after. Of course, the events in Charlottesville have uh, been in the news quite a bit here uh, in the United States and around the world. And one of the uh, interesting bits of fallout has been the uh, dissolving of the President's Council on Manufacturing. And uh, it was supposed to be bringing jobs to the U.S. and, and things like that. Well, the folks that were on that, about six folks resigned from that. And then he got frustrated and just told the rest of them to go home. But um, of course, they they resigned because they didn't want to align themselves with, uh, you know, some, you know, a position that was seen as maybe slightly white supremacist. And, you know, even, it's just not good for business, you know, bottom line, what their real feelings are or not, or how tolerant they are or whatever the position, in you know, or free speech, whatever. It was just bad for business. They didn't want to be a part of it. So but Trump has another reason as to why these folks resigned from his manufacturing council.
1: Some of the Folks that will leave, they're leaving out of embarrassment because they make their products outside. And I've been lecturing them, including the
0: gentleman that you're referring to, about you have to bring it back to this country. And he says that with a straight face, as if this never happened. Number one selling tie anywhere in the world. That well,
1: shirt, that, that's, you wouldn't wear that we shirt? We also have them in white and beautiful where, white. Where are the shirts made? Bangladesh. Bangladesh. Well, that's good. Okay. We employ people in Bangladesh.
0: Ties, where are the ties made? Have to work These are too. beautiful ties. They are great ties. The ties are made in where? China. China. Ties are made in China. That, of course, uh, the appearance we played before on uh, David Letterman's uh, late show on, over there on CBS, and uh, boy, oh boy, uh, it, it, it. That clip always comes back to haunt him. And I looked it up, and the only thing, of course, he made in the United States were those stupid hats, although the materials were imported, it turns out, and bottled water. The Trump Waters bottled in Vermont and New Hampshire, I believe, and just about everything else is made overseas. So, of course, I'm sure when the CEOs heard that, they were thinking themselves, what kind of nonsense is that? Amazing Jonathan is a stand-up comedian and magician, although he considers himself more of a comedian, even though he's really a brilliant magician. We'll be getting to all that in our interview with the Amazing Jonathan. Hello, Jonathan. Yes. Hi, it's P.F. Wilson from Sitsani City Beat. Hey, nice to meet you. Hi, how are you? Good. Cool. Um, boy, this is a, an honor to talk to you. I've been a fan for a long, long time.
1: Oh, thanks,
0: man. Yeah. And, um, yeah, uh, remember watching you on uh, TV and uh, and stuff, and uh, hilarious, and, of course, uh, entertaining with the magic as well. Um, so uh, what made you decide to, uh, were you interested in magic or comedy first? I guess it would be a good place to start.
1: Um, I was interested in magic first, I used to uh, do it in junior high and high school, and, uh, and uh, then I did the uh, high school talent show, and, and that went horribly wrong, and, and <laughs> that's when they dropped the magic from my show, and, and I dropped it all together for about a year, and then I, I started street performing in San Francisco, and I added the comedy then.
0: Oh, okay, and decided so to bring the, the magic back that way.
1: Yeah, well, that's the only thing I knew how to do. So, I mean, I, I just. Uh, Basically, I just uh, did what I did at the talent show, and I did all the tricks wrong on purpose instead of by accident. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. I did like six tricks during the talent show, and, and every single one of them went wrong. So it was pretty humiliating. So I just took that format and uh, and uh, made everything go wrong on purpose.
0: Ah, cool. And, yeah. did, and of course, you you were uh, quickly became famous for kind of doing... Uh, Kind of, I do what what I say shocking but I guess it's the right yeah I was
1: that. doing the razor blade trick where yeah. you swallow the razor blades and then pulling them up with the thread but some guy on the street uh, gave me a blood capsule and said try to try it with this and then when I did it it was uh, like whole another reaction and, and, and so yeah I took that route uh, the gory route after that because it got people to stop on the street you know
0: oh okay that's cool. And so yeah. was was it difficult concurrently developing your comedy and your magic at the same time? Because, you know, it, it's hard enough getting good at one of those things, but you, of course, got brilliant at both of them.
1: Yeah, I just uh, you know, I, I took the comedy a lot, a lot easier than I did the magic. You know, uh, the repetition and the practice that magic requires wasn't as fun as, as writing the comedy. You know, I I had some pretty good teachers out on the street. You know, there's Harry Anderson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, was out there and uh, he, t- he I watched him and he showed me some stuff and uh, a couple guys that later were on Saturday Night Live you know so when I when I actually started doing it indoors uh, instead of on the street I, uh, I started doing comedy clubs right off the bat you know and um, Dana Carvey was with me and uh, you know the whole San Francisco scene uh, Ellen DeGeneres and yeah those guys were kind of coming up at the same time I was coming up and, um, and then Robin Williams came on the scene, and he was, you know, he was a, a whole phenomenon in itself. And I remember him coming in with his Mark and Mindy contract saying he got a new TV show, and, and we are, you know, you're making 5000 a week, oh my God, you know. It's pretty wild.
0: That's great. Yeah, they, as they would say, big money in those days. big money yeah. now, actually, <laughs> if we're being honest. Um, so, were you from San Francisco originally, or was it like like Paula Powell no, and his other folks? I was from Detroit. Okay, there you go. Oh, yeah, okay.
1: Yeah, I was from Detroit, and then I just uh, went out there, and um, the people that we went out there with, we got in a fight with, and they left us in, in L.A., and they went back to Detroit, and then we hiked to San Francisco, and uh, that's where I saw Street Performing for the first time, you know.
0: And did you have a notion that that was going to be your your avenue into showbiz by street performing or, instead of staying in Los Angeles, or because
1: it? Well, yeah. I mean, I tried it in L.A., and I this there's, uh, there's I have a picture of me like kneeling on the ground and doing magic for two two little kids, and that was I'm not going to pay my bills.
0: Okay. You know,
1: um, but so I went when I went to San Francisco. I was pretty much organized street performing. I saw, you know, what it was like to get you know hundred people standing out on the street watching you and. And eventually um so that's what i was doing you know my crowds got really really big and then i started getting arrested for it because um they were calling it obstruction because people would go out in the street and then the crowds would form and get so big that the, the streets were blocked, and i couldn't really control that so they arrested me and i had to get off the streets after that because uh I was just getting to be ridiculous i was spending weekends in jail and
0: wow that's crazy but did it getting crowds that size on the street did it make it easier to transition to stage or were there other considerations you had to make when you started going into clubs and so forth
1: no it, it was easy to transition because I mean I, the streets are rough and then and if you can get a crowd down the streets when they're not really there to see you at all but to you know shop and do other things then you could hold a, a comedy club audience easily because that's what they're there for you know so yeah, no, it was an easy transition. I mean, when I went in, by the time I went into clubs, I was already headlining because people didn't want to follow the the energy I had taken from the street. Ah, uh, you know?
0: yeah, yeah. So, uh, what what kind of inspired your uh, developing your tricks? Is that did you like take? Because uh, I know sometimes magicians use old ones and rework them. Because I've I've known, especially from watching the Penn and Teller Foolish lately, that we're huge fans of. Uh, yeah,
1: Penn and Teller were they were out there with, with me as well. They were. Yeah. They had their show on Broadway in San Francisco and off Broadway at, at a place called the Phoenix Theater. They were just kids, you know. This was back in 77, 78. and they were still doing with uh, Penn and Teller back then. So I would go and watch them and Harry Anderson and and I just got the the hang of writing comedy. I got the, the formula down, you know. I was there were these jokes joke books that um, I was told about um, Robert Orban who was a comedy writer and he would put out these little pamphlets uh, with jokes um, just one-liners and I I got to figure out how jokes worked by reworking his jokes you know yeah. I I would sit in the library you couldn't check them out but you could read them there and uh, I would sit there for hours and just learn how to to rework the old material to be modern and and take the formula from those and, and then I got to be uh pretty proficient at writing comedy you know and then then you start just thinking funny after a while after years and years and so yeah um yeah you gotta i would go to the magic castle and watch magicians and say what would happen if they fucked up you know but so i would watch that with a slanted perspective and and, and get good ideas from that and i would um, build my own props and you know it was This i was a teenager you know i was looking at my early 20s and uh, building props in my apartment and out on stage there's a lot of comedy rooms back
0: then oh yeah yeah so did jokes ever inspire uh, uh, any any illusions or uh, different ways to do an illusion or did you do get put the illusion together first and then kind of the comedy <laughs> was added to well, it I didn't
1: do big illusions and uh, are considered uh, when you say illusions like like big stuff like like the sword cabinet and, the levitation oh, okay. and yeah, I mean, I, I I stuck with the magic. I still learn. I still wanted to learn magic, but um, comedy was first and foremost, you know. And um, now I, I tend to work on magic more, you know, because uh, comedy I got down, but yeah. yeah, I still. I mean, there's a magic convention right now in town in Vegas, and I was there like for three days in a row, buying magic tricks and talking to magicians, and so I still keep up on the magic end of it, you know.
0: So you're still in Vegas? Yeah. Okay, cool. And you, like, uh, uh, pal around with um, uh, Matt King and Penn and Teller and those guys? I know you guys go to yeah, each other. Yeah, I, I
1: was with David Copperfield last night. And oh, I nice. And dinner with Chris Angel. I went and saw Chris Angel. Oh,
0: um, that's right. You guys are buds.
1: Yeah, we're. we're I see all these guys. You know. I went to head dinner with Chris and and um, went to a show with him. And, yeah, I still hang out with those guys. We're a pretty tight-knit community here.
0: Yeah, it seems like it is a pretty tight community because I know you know Penn and Teller always comment when Matt King stops by and has some some kind words, and uh, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. So how did you end up with your residency in Vegas? Because I think we saw you at the well, Gold Nugget. Gosh, back in yeah, the 90s, yeah yeah. I
1: was I played Vegas sporadically on and off, uh, headlining in Vegas um, at the Sahara, and then um, David Brenner, who was at the Gold Nugget downtown. Um, wanted to take a two-week uh, summer vacation and asked me if I'd sell in for him for two weeks. And when we did, we sold out every night for some reason. I mean, it was probably right after the Comedy Central special. Ah. We were doing pretty good business at the Sahara. but uh, So I did two weeks at the Nugget and then sold out every night, which was really hard to do because it's downtown and not on yep. the strip. Yep. And uh, people were having a hard time downtown bringing entertainment there after the strip opened so uh the nugget were thrilled and they they held me over for another two weeks and then another two weeks and then asked me if i wanted to do a 10 o'clock spot after brenner's eight o'clock spot and uh so we took that and we were there for um almost two and a half years yeah that i was, was there and i lived there i lived at the nugget i lived on the, in one of the suites and, and it was great i mean that's basically where I was able to save most of my money because, um, I mean, the money that they paid well, casinos are real generous when you're making money for them, but when you're yeah. not, you're, you know, you're like David Brenner, he kind of was having a rough time, that, and so they got rid of him, and, guy, and, and it was like, uh, as long as I was making the money, they were making me rich, so. Ah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting with um, magicians in Las Vegas, when they do a resident, a lot of them are are well-known outside the of Las Vegas, but then other entertainers, particularly a lot of singers, uh, the late Danny Gans, um, and some other folks, they're really not known beyond the, right. the French guy that used to be at Paris, uh, Rene Gould, well, he used to do all the Yeah, the, the guy that did the voice, yeah, and yeah, voice yeah.
1: impressions, yeah. And even Terry Fader Yeah, there's Terry a lot of Fader people of that come to town and, and, and think they're going to do really great business, but uh, they don't make it anymore, you know, because it's, uh, it's, it's really hard right now because of the depression, you know, the recession and all that stuff, but yeah, I mean the reason I think I lasted long as long as I did, and Penn and Teller lasted as long as I did, is because we had a lot of TV backing us. You know, a lot of yeah eighties, eighties and nineties television shows. We were on all of them, and 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 uh, that helped my longevity. But the um, ass those people that are like Danny Gans, like you said, as soon as they leave the city limits, nobody knows who they are. But they're certainly big stars out here, you know. Yeah, but that. That's a, that's a hard thing to do nowadays. With, with You pretty much have to come in with a name.
0: It's weird, too, because a lot of comedians I talk to say, you know, I haven't heard this so much lately, but a couple of years ago I this year there's a lot of people saying, oh, that's the dream gig, man, to do a residency in Vegas and not have to go anywhere, man. That's the Oh, l- yeah, yeah, that's right. It
1: is a dream gig. because I mean, I can sit, go on the road and make you know one quarter of what I make in a week on the road, and then have to travel and do all that shit. So, I mean, yeah, people... Vegas used to be a town where entertainers would come and, and like, like, an elephant ground, you know, they'd come to die, you know. And now <laughs> yeah. now they come here to, to try to get a gig because nobody wants to deal with the airlines anymore, you know, so that's a pain in the ass uh, flying around doing doing shows that it's just... To drive to work is the biggest luxury in the world, you know.
0: Oh, yeah. And
1: uh, I miss that. I mean, uh, when I stopped doing Vegas, I figured I, I retired... For three years, and, right. uh, and then, so, you know, now I'm back I, back working again, I have to be on the road, you know, there's no real place in Vegas for me right now, because, so, uh,
0: so what got you back on the road, I know you'd had some health issues, in fact, we, yeah, we spoke well, to, I, was told
1: uh, that I had a year and a half to live, and then, and, and, yeah, and so, I took that at its at its base value, and, and sat around waiting to die, and it didn't happen, so, uh, it's been three years now, since I was diagnosed, and um, I decided to go back on the road, so I'm doing it um, improv, uh, but it's, you know, I thought I was ready to go back on the road, and I am, but it's it's real tiring for me, man. It's like after 15 minutes of doing my show on stage, I'm ready to sit down, you know, I'm (laughs) I'm out of breath, and, you know, all the stuff that comes along with having a bad heart. Yeah. It comes welling up, and uh, but it's you know people understand my situation. I think. Sure. And if I have to sit down and lean on a stool for for twenty minutes out of the show, they don't mind. They just want to see the show, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, a lot it's, of it, comedians, they, you know, said they have a stool out there anyway, so it's it's not. Yeah,
1: but it's, it's, it's just that they just thought they'd never get to see the show anymore. Right. People were writing saying, "Oh, I, I, I'm sorry, and they never got to see your show," and so I'm catering to those people right now.
0: That's cool, yeah, because um, we, we, we'd be anxious to see it again uh, as well, so it's good that you're touring. You know, we spoke to uh, Steve Byrne, uh, your friend, uh, uh, about a year ago, and he was talking about this documentary he put together about yeah. you. And I, I, so how, yeah. what's the status of that? Because we haven't spoken to Well, that's anymore. finished now. I
1: just saw the rough, rough cut of it about a month ago, okay. three weeks ago, and uh, he did a great job on it. I mean, it's amazing. It tells, tells the story pretty well, and... Uh, and it shows me going back and doing my first show after three years, and and, and the crowd reaction, and it, it's pretty interesting. I mean, not just because it's on me, but it's pretty interesting just to do a documentary and while you're still alive and get to see it happen, you know, and get to watch. Hopefully, it'll it'll get out there and get to make the around. They're taking it to the film festivals first.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Um, you know, especially uh, you know having the fans come out and remember you fondly from, like you said, the, the days back on TV and on on cable and places like that. And uh, you know, it's it's, it's nice to it's see. It's
1: amazing at it. how big of a part of of that was their lives when they were growing up. I mean, people come up to me and and some of them are literally crying, you know, and saying, "Oh my God, you don't know what it meant to me." And me my dad used to watch you. and Me and my dad used to watch you when we were when I was a little kid, and we laughed together and. I get all kinds of stories, man, you know, and really good stories. So it's kind of heartwarming, you know, so know that you had some kind of an effect.
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like I said, I remember, you know, definitely a, a, an icon from the all those, uh, you know, comp, young comedian specials and and all those with all of your uh, like you saw those people you mentioned, like uh, Ellen and Paula Poundstone, and all the people out of that San Francisco scene. Um, yeah. Yeah. Do you still see any of those folks around?
1: yeah I do I see them I see them once in a while I don't see the ones that have made a huge like Tim Allen and the, you know the guys that were on uh, Roseanne Barr were my opening acts you know so that's how long I've been around them I mean, it's just been three generations of bands uh, since I've been here for since the 70s you know yeah um, but I still see um, some of them but not like Roseanne will pop up once in a while and and and, and I'll see her and, and uh, I've not seen Tim or or some of the other ones that are big and really huge, but I hang out with Keratop, and, and 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 you know he's he's friendly. He's a nice guy that plays Vegas. Some of them come oh, through yeah. Vegas. yeah. You know they all come through Vegas eventually, so I get to see him if I want to go see him. I, I will
0: see him. Uh, I'm finally, I'm glad that Keratop's finally the, the bad rap is off of that guy because um, especially with his appearance on Marin, and you were on Marin's podcast too, as a matter of fact. Yeah. Right? yeah him being yeah, on there, a, it was nice to know that he knows what time it is, and uh, he, he does seem like a really nice guy.
1: He's a very nice guy, and people that see his show who who were bad-mouthing him, they, they, they shut their mouths afterwards. Because, yeah. I mean, he's got an amazing stage presence, and uh, he's very clever. And, and, you know, he took the, the prop comment. I never got that that stigma attached to my props for some reason, but he did, you know, and considered to be a hack by stand-ups. But, but now that's, yeah. like you said, it's fading. But I never... People said to me, you know, you're kind of like a parody of prop comics. but I'm, I'm, I'll take it, whatever you yeah. say. But I'm, I am a prop comic, but I'll take whatever you, you know, well, I don't have to go through the shit he had to go through.
0: Right, right. Well, his was more, and it's just a matter of style. It's not one is better than the other. His is just more rapid fire. Uh, you know, set a right. punchline with a visual and yours is still kind of had that magic element to it, so I guess it maybe seemed to people that you were doing more with the prop that was a little more involved but it doesn't matter, you, you laugh at both of them so what's what's the difference? Well,
1: yeah, the stand-up comics got to understand, not only do we have to write the joke we have to build the prop yeah, as well, so that's a, even it's harder harder to do than what they're doing so, you know it's, it's people, people are like magicians they're like very jealous of each other and, 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 and uh,
0: magicians are the same way, you know, they're well, sure. That's well. That's showbiz, as they say. But yeah, I guess you've, you've got is, your critics on both sides. Then I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been real lucky to to be
1: able to have fans. See, I can ride the fence on, on like like if you hang out with Copperfield, you don't hang out with Chris Angel, and vice versa. But I, I can ride the fence on both of them because I'm not I'm not a threat to either of them. You know. Yeah. So so it's you know, I'm kind of the the invisible man in the room when it comes to you know politics and
0: that kind of stuff. Uh well okay well, I'll let you go I feel I've taken up uh, a lot of your time already and um, uh, thank you for d- doing the interview and um, we'll see you in Cincinnati here in September and uh, glad that you're back out on the road for folks this is very exciting yeah for man amazing Jonathan yeah. fans okay okay well, well thanks for taking the time Jonathan no problem man all right bye bye thank you. Thanks again to the amazing Jonathan for being on the show. Good to see him back out on the road. Big favorite from the 80s. Now, uh, as far as where he's going to be, he's supposed to be in our neck of the woods, Cincinnati, uh, September 8th through the 10th at the Funny Bone up there in Liberty Township, although the... Uh, His website says he's not there until November, but the club website says September. Also, he's supposed to be in Addison, Texas this week, uh, August 25th through 27th, and then Kansas City, uh, September 29th through October 1st. Check your local listings, and you can just check out his website uh, for all this tour information. All kinds of other goodies are on there as well. So... We've come to the song of the week. Song of the week another one of these things where it's a DJ who's gotten together with a singer. In this case, Sagala, British DJ and remixer. And a singer, L.I.R.E., uh, who's had a couple of hits over in the UK. And again, I really like when these DJs and singers get together. Of course, Calvin Harris always has success with this formula. Uh, Zedd, um, a, a lot of DJs have had success with this formula. Don't like the throw your hands in the air 90 minutes of, you know, just beats and all that stuff. That No, four minutes, I'm out. But uh, I like it in this format, and it, like I said in the intro, it hasn't really done well in North America. It hasn't even charted here. It was number six in the UK. It has dropped the number nine as of this recording. But I think you're really going to like this. It's a nice catchy tune. It's a little different than what we've been playing the past couple of weeks, being a bit more alternative uh, in our uh, selections. But here, this is Sagala and Ella Ree came here for love. A song of the Week on PF Tape Recorder. So long and thanks for listening. I'm no longer brokenhearted So glad I came here tonight and I see you got what I wanted Baby, you got what I like